Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University Hospital. Joining us today is Dr. Michael Nance, Chief of Pediatric Trauma and Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. There is an increasing awareness of the very high incidence of concussion with long-term cognitive consequences, particularly in pediatric patients. Whereas in the past, this entity was felt to be short-lived, trauma surgeons today and pediatricians are faced with patients who continue to have symptoms that can hinder their quality of life and also often tasked with determining when these kids can return to sports or other activities that can expose them to the risk of recurrent head injury. Today, we'll be discussing these issues with Dr. Nance. Welcome. Good morning. Let's start by defining what a concussion is and its incidence in the pediatric population. Um, I'm not sure we understand uh, entirely what a concussion is. There are features that are uh, common to all concussions, and, and that's a, uh, a mechanical force. And that mechanical force sets off um, a complex pathophysiologic process, and it's probably uh, at its root a, a neurometabolic imbalance. So it's an imbalance between the uh, uh, supply needed to heal uh, and the demands uh, made on the uh, on the brain. What I think a lot of people don't realize, particularly uh, parents, is that the mechanical forces don't always have to be a blow to the head. It doesn't need to be um, a head-to-head uh, contact in football. It can be a blow to the chest where there's uh, movement, acceleration, deceleration of the uh, of the head because of that blow that can lead to a concussion. And um, how often do we have any idea what the incidences in pediatrics? It seems to be on the rise. Uh, the uh, recent estimates from the CDC uh, suggest that there may be as many as 3.8 million uh, concussions a year, and um, it's a very difficult number to get to get a hold of because uh, there probably is a degree of underreporting, uh, particularly in the pediatric world, where uh, kids know if they report concussion or concussion-like symptoms, they may be pulled from play, uh, and they don't want that. Uh, there may be underreporting because of uh, a failure to recognize the symptoms that go along with concussion. So, 3.8 million may simply be uh, tip of the iceberg. It may be uh, far worse. And um, I think the other thing that many don't realize is that it, it's sports that has gotten all of the attention in recent years, and that's not all all bad. It's gotten uh, a lot of press, and that helps increase awareness. Um, but, but sports are not the only way that kids or adults are going to get concussions. Uh, so we see many uh, kids that are injured in non-sports-related uh, activities but sustain a concussion nonetheless. And at the end of the day, they have the same uh, wants and desires, and that's to get back to their uh, regular activities, whether it's sports or non-sports activities. And I assume we're talking mostly about um, kids that are about age 8 to 12, or I'm sorry, 8 to uh, 18, something like that? Uh, I would assume that anyone can get a concussion from an infant to uh, an 85-year-old uh, because it's it's simply mechanical forces. I think the, the difference, certainly in that younger group, is our ability to recognize it. A, a three-year-old might not tell you that they have a wicked headache or uh, I feel foggy or I can't concentrate on uh, my coloring um, so that their symptoms, reported symptoms, are going to be quite different. And so I, I think the younger kids certainly can have them. I think our ability to detect them is lacking. 
And so that then gets us into the symptomatology and diagnostic criteria. So what are some of the symptoms and how do you diagnose someone with a concussion? Uh, the, the most common reported symptoms are going to be headache. Headache is going to be number one symptom reported. But other things um, that are commonly reported are, are fatigue, particularly after the immediate uh, event because it really sort of takes a toll on the, on the child. Um, around the event, um, it, it may be this description of a feeling of fogginess or an out-of-body experience. They sort of uh, can't quite remember what happened, um, but know something did. Um, uh, they may also early on have uh, nausea and vomiting um, as a as a uh, symptom or uh, a sign. The um, to diagnose a, a concussion, it's it's perhaps uh, recognition by uh, a professional or a parent even uh, at the event. So at a sporting event, rec- a sporting event recognizing that their child isn't normal or that the player isn't normal. It may be the the player themselves, um, you know, saying I something's wrong, I've got a headache. Uh, and um, it's a, a um, clinical diagnosis. So it's, it's recognition that there was an event that could have caused it. Uh, it's a recognition of some of the symptoms. And then there's uh, sideline testing that can be performed. You know, it's typically kind of memory recall and, and cognitive challenges that are used to diagnose a concussion. And once it's diagnosed, the single most important uh, thing is just getting uh, the kid out of play and out of harm's way. So you guys aren't using MRI or any other type of imaging modality for these patients? So MRI is not typically used in the acute setting. Uh, so once somebody has a concussion, uh, depending on the severity and how the child looks, you know, the, that child may or may not end up in an emergency room. And then in the emergency room, the ER physicians need to make a, a decision whether there are clinical features that warrant imaging, and there are good guidelines that are out uh, uh, and available to help determine which child, you know, with a head injury needs a a CT scan, for instance. Most, though, uh, sort of don't make it uh, to those criteria, and they're diagnosed with a concussion and sent home. Um, And then, uh, you know, one of our big black holes is what happens to those kids in the ED in terms of recommendations and what happens to those kids afterwards in terms of follow-up. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, a lot lacking in both of those areas. Now we'll talk about when the child can be released back to you know activities of daily living. But but before we get to that, let's just assume that you know this child had some sort of a mechanism and it's not coming back to the office, complaining of a kind of persistent headache, uh, maybe inability to concentrate for a while. What do you? So we're still in kind of the subacute phase. What do you do with that child? Uh, well, I'm glad that they made it to the office because that's uh, something that doesn't always happen. The, from the emergency room, you know, hopefully most are recommending uh, cognitive rest. That's one of the first steps. So, you know, when they've made the diagnosis of a concussion, they should also have them uh, start a period of cognitive rest, and that's really shut down, going, you know, home and doing very little, and, and in particular, not doing things which cognitively stimulate them, and that can be watching TV or playing video games or uh, screened. Anything with a screen is particularly challenging. Uh, so time on the computer, uh, concentrating to do um, texting and, and things like that. So they really should try to shut that down as much as possible. Um, or limit it, do it in small aliquots so that they do a few minutes and then take a break so that they're not bringing on uh, more symptoms and not using up uh, their 
uh, brain's you know metabolic needs uh, to do things that are unnecessary. But if we see those kids uh, in the office, it depends on what they've done. If they haven't done the cognitive rest piece, then we really shut them down. Um, and some of them have you know played in a football game on Saturday or Friday night and uh, were injured. Uh, and they stay home for Saturday and Sunday because it's the weekend, but then try to get back on a Monday. And they may find that they have. Uh, a wicked headache by you know second period and aren't concentrating and so they go home and then they try again the next day and the next day but those are clearly kids that need to be shut down cognitive rest until they're symptom free and then they can uh, go back to school and they may or may not need additional accommodations it may be that uh, they need to get through half a day uh, symptom free and then advance to a full day uh, and that's it's very difficult to pull kids out of school, both logistically if you have parents that are working, um, but also, you know, kids feeling like they're getting behind and adding to stress and things like that. But uh, if they're symptomatic in school, it's going to not be, uh, uh, you know, they won't, they won't do well. They won't learn anything uh, probably at that time. So it's not doing them any good to be there. Any role for medications? Not in the acute phase. So very, very uh, little data to suggest um, medications are a benefit in the, in the acute phase. And it's, th- there's probably something out there, some sort of cocktail that will be beneficial uh, down the road, but haven't identified it. And some will use, um, you know, there's a lot of use of, of Tylenol, Motrin, which you know, in a very short time may be useful, but there's also concerns for rebound for those medications. And so we, we really recommend trying to minimize those if possible. Uh, and the better strategy is probably to avoid those things that provoke the symptoms. So if they're starting to read or getting on the computer and that's provoking a symptom, rather than persisting with that activity and causing a headache and then having to medicate, they should probably avoid the activity. And so that talks about some uh, medical therapy and then this need for cognitive shutdown that you said. What about all the other things kids do? So this kid you know, doesn't have headaches and, and seems, seemingly is okay, but he's a football player. He wants to get back to football. So it, <clears throat> it's a it's a graded return. There's there's pretty good data um, that has come out of the uh, adult um, sports or college and and pro athletes, uh, you know, with a with a good return to play algorithm, and that probably uh, is appropriate for kids, um, but it's going to take a little bit longer. So there, there's very compelling data that's come out of the uh, uh, concussion group from Pittsburgh about how kids uh, how college athletes, how pro athletes, uh, how long it takes them to, to return to baseline. And this is using preseason baseline testing so they have their own um, baseline and then following them after concussion. And what's very clear is that younger kids, younger athletes take longer to recover. So a pro athlete may be injured on a Sunday, get tested, get tested again later in the week, um, and then have sort of this rapid uh, return to play, graded but uh, fairly rapid. Uh, whereas a younger athlete, you know, may not be ready to do that in, in, in a week or 10 days. It's probably going to take them longer, 10 days to two weeks. How so, would you know? Um, by clinical exam and by the, the uh, neurocognitive testing. So there are a variety of neurocognitive tests available. We tend to use IMPACT, um, just one of, of a variety that are available. Uh, and that provides one uh, piece of the puzzle. That those kind of testing uh uh, that or that kind of testing is best used if they have their own baseline and many athletes nowadays have their own baseline uh, and so you can truly test them pre-injury and post-injury to get a good assessment 
Um, we don't always have that luxury or we don't have that luxury in somebody that might not be an athlete and they come in with a head injury from falling off their bike or, or some similar thing. So there are normative values that you can test them to and get a sense. Um, and then you also can get, uh, that'll be a window in time. So even if they're post-injury with no pre-injury baseline, you have a, a picture in time uh, and then can get, uh, if they come back for follow-up, you have another test so you can see how they're progressing. So the neurocognitive testing can be helpful, but it's just one part of the puzzle. It also has to be paired with the clinical exam and how they're progressing and what their symptoms are. And are you doing the neurocognitive testing or do you refer to a pediatric neurologist? Um, it, it's going to depend on the resources available at the local institution. So at, at our institution, we see uh, kids with concussions in the trauma clinic. So I, I see them. Uh, we do the neurocognitive testing there. We also have uh, patients seen in our sports medicine uh, clinic. And those are typically in the peds world. Uh, sports medicine is a uh, pediatrician who's done sports medicine fellowship. Um, the neurology team uh, will play a variable role depending on their uh, interest and activity at a particular institution. So one institution, it may be driven by the pediatri pediatricians. Another institution, it may be driven by trauma. Another institution, it may be driven by neurology. And I think it's it's going to be you know, guided by who has the interest and in, in where the resources lie. So the decision to uh, send a patient who's had a severe concussion uh, back to activities of daily living then ultimately comes down to a combination of their symptomatology, headache, dizziness, nausea, that kind of stuff, on top of their neurocognitive testing for the really bad concussions. Is that about right? Yeah, and, and for the not-so-bad. So the not-so-bad may come in uh, and get neurocognitive testing that looks good and have an exam that looks good and may be cleared to get on a path to return to play. So we talked about the, the very early part, which is cognitive rest. And once they have graduated from the cognitive rest phase, are doing okay and can go to school, um, uh, they can start doing physical activities, and that's you know light activity, light aerobic activity, um, getting their uh, heart rate up and and uh, stressing them a little bit, um, but not doing it in a contact fashion. And once they can do that without bringing on symptoms, they would advance to the next level, which, if they're in a particular sport, is usually uh, starting to do the conditioning exercises of that sport. So if they're playing football, it may be doing the, the non-contact drills, the running, um, to get their heart rate up and, and make sure that it doesn't bring on symptoms. Then they can get back to full practice, which may include contact. And if they do okay with that, then it's a full clearance to return to play. And, and, um, and that's a lot of stepwise progress. So obviously the rate of progress is variable, but in general, what are we talking about? Well, it can be, you know, if they're, if they're doing fine, it can be a matter of days. So, you know, one that has a child that has a, a concussion um, but very few symptoms and doing well, it, it may be a couple days. Um, you know, you, you try the, the conditioning piece for a day or two and skip the contact drills, and if you do okay, then you go to the contact drills. And then so um, it's, it's a matter of how quickly they uh, – advance through those different steps. Other kids will be stuck on the cognitive rest phase for a week or two weeks or get stuck in the early return to physical activity phase. Uh, so it's incredibly variable. So two kids with, with uh, an almost identical mechanism may have a, a profoundly different recovery phase. And I think you already addressed this, but what are some of the significant differences between pediatrics and adults in this regard then? 
I think the the most significant difference is the time it takes to return to play and the time, the expectations of return to play. Um, in, in an adult, and again, this goes back to the sports-related research, the uh, highly conditioned college or, or pro athletes get better faster. Um, and so their return to play uh, may be a week to 10 days. But the, in the kids, there's very good evidence that it takes longer. There's also um, emerging data about um, cerebral blood flow alterations. Uh, and this is out of pediatric data coupled with neurocognitive testing. Um, and there is a, a, a period of reduced cerebral blood flow following a concussion, and that can take um, you know, 14 days to, to 28 days to sort of return to close to normal. Um, and that's not something that's generally tested. Um, but it's something that was persisting on these particular patients. So you may, you know, we may not even understand the problem yet. But I think the most important thing is that a, a child, a younger athlete or younger uh, child, not even athlete, will probably take longer to recover and get to baseline than, than does the adult. And then um, just kind of bringing things to a close, what do you do or what do you recommend to a child who has had recurrent concussions? And how recurrent does it have to be before you say, you know, maybe you should look at something else? Um, the most important thing is probably keeping them out of harm's way after an individual concussion. And I think um, we're starting to get better at that. So it's, it's the actual recognition that a child has a concussion, pulling them out of play and avoiding harm's way. The thing that um, we do know with, with uh, pretty good evidence is that a return to play prematurely uh, it puts them at a greater risk for another concussion. So not completely understood why probably uh, um, a threshold level uh, is lowered uh, because I've had one concussion and if you get another concussion in that vulnerable phase uh, on the catastrophic end there's a thing called second impact syndrome which is incompletely understood understood but uh, it can have catastrophic uh, repercussions even death from uh, much lower force but, you know, the more common everyday thing is that uh, getting back too quickly, they have an increased risk for concussion, and those concussions tend to be worse, so more symptomatic, longer to recover. And if you have repeated concussions, um, then perhaps you're concussion-prone, although I'm not sure we, we know what defines that, but uh, it, it may be you have an underlying issue with, you know, the brain or it may be that your style of play is such that you're putting yourself at risk, and I'm not sure. It's probably a, a combination of both. But I think that athlete needs to, to sort of step back and decide, uh, you know, how important that is in their life. If it's a, you know, a wrestler, is rest, you're not going to be a professional wrestler in, in most cases, so you know, perhaps it's time to, uh, to choose something uh, that's less, uh, uh, less risky to you. So you would keep them out of harm's way until they pass their um, physical exam, neurocognitive exam, put them on a graded return back to contact sports or whatever. And then if they <clears throat> bounce back again with their second or third concussion, that's when you start saying to them, look, you know, you should maybe change your, uh, your that's sports. That's when they need to make decisions. And, and uh, you know, a very high-end athlete, perhaps one that their only chance to, you know, to move ahead or to get into college is – you know, perceived to be getting a scholarship or, or something like that, then, then it, you know, it's going to be a, a tougher sell. Um, but, you know, you, our job is to, is to educate them so that they understand, you know, what risks uh, they're taking and, and long-term. I think, you know, what's really been some pretty profound um, data recently is the, is the 
uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy work that's you know demonstrating these long-term profound abnormalities in these uh, in the athletes and many of those athletes never had um, reported concussions or their concussion history was was not very impressive yet they have clear evidence of uh, of, of damage and so one last question uh, I assume most of the people who are going to listen to this are not pediatric trauma surgeons and certainly the vast majority don't work at a place like CHOP. How much can a run-of-the-mill trauma surgeon like me uh, lean on their pediatrician to help them along with this whole uh, treatment regimen and uh, diagnostic algorithm? Uh, That's a huge problem. So it's great that we've uh, recognized, you know, concussion and the need to, to go through a formal algorithm and, uh, and evaluate them, um, but it's, uh, I'm not sure the resources are necessarily there. And that's compounded by um, many states are passing laws about uh, kids not returning to play. So if a child is injured while uh, playing sports, they cannot return until they're cleared by a licensed professional. Um, you know, the licensed professional is kind of the gray area. It's not clear. Some states differ or some states are very specific about who that can be. Um, but all of a sudden, uh, states are having an influx or, uh, not, it's not an influx, but it's a, a, uh, increase in the number of kids they have to see because they're now mandated by law to be cleared. And not all pediatricians are comfortable with doing that. Not all have training to do that. Um, so it's simply sending them to the pediatrician may not be enough. Uh, I hope the pediatricians that aren't, um, comfortable with clearance or not trained to clear them will not just do it um, because they uh, feel compelled to, but rather uh, learn the resources in their community and where to send them. So if a parent calls with a child that needs to get cleared after a concussion, then they'll either clear them because they're trained or send them to an appropriate uh, professional to do it. And I'm not sure um, in this acute phase, you know, we actually have sufficient resources. It's It's a sort of a flooding the system before the system was ready. So the mandate is good, but I'm not sure the infrastructure was, uh, is quite ready yet. Well, I mean, this is clearly a uh, evolving problem in, in incidents and also in prevalence as the, as the symptoms continue to linger and more and more people are concussed. So on the adult side, this is a problem. Clearly on the pediatric side, it's an even bigger problem because of the lack of pediatric uh, specialists like you or pediatric neurologists, et cetera, who can address this. Uh, nonetheless, we thought at East, that this was um, a topic that we wanted to specifically address, um, given its importance, its uh, high-profile nature in the in the press, and uh, as I said, its increasing uh, incidence and prevalence. So I uh, very sincerely appreciate you taking the time um, to join us and to review this topic with us. I suspect we'll ask you to come back again in a couple of years as more data accumulates and uh, we can maybe talk about more specific uh, therapeutic options. But um, I think the discussion on um, the diagnosis and at least the non-medical management um, hopefully will be of relevance and of uh, great help to the, uh, to the average trauma surgeon out there. So thank you for your time. That's my pleasure. Uh, this concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani.